0: You're playing my song. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Was that just for me? I, I want to believe it was just for me. I know it was for the Lord, but you know what I mean. Uh, that's just beautiful. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you again, folks. As we uh, prepare to open God's word together, let's join our hearts in prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, We pray that as we open your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that the meditation of all of our hearts, the words of my mouth, would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus we pray, amen. So this evening, uh, we're reading from the book of Revelation. It is the last book in our scripture. I'm just going to read verses 6 through 10 of Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to be thinking together a bit about uh, this metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ. Beginning at verse 6 of Revelation 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be looking together for a few minutes at uh, these verses as we think through uh, this metaphor that the Bible uses to describe the church, and it's this metaphor of a bride. Now of all the metaphors that you can find in the Bible uh, of the the church of Jesus Christ, the bride in some ways is the most profound, this, this idea that that Jesus is our groom, that God is the groom, and we are the bride, because it is the most intimate of all of the metaphors. It is, it is as if God is telling us in this metaphor, I want a relationship with you that is so intimate and that is so enduring that it can only really be described as a marriage You can't know my love, God says to us. You can't know my love. You can't really understand how committed to you I am, how devoted to you I am, uh, until you see that I'm I'm not just your father, I'm not just your shepherd, I'm not just your king. I am your husband. And this metaphor is already used in the Old Testament. There's a couple passages I can share with you. First of all, in Isaiah 54, it says this, beginning of verse 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. And then just a little further on in, uh, in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 62 verse 5, it says this. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And it's not actually just the Old Old Testament that uses this kind of language. You, You know, if you have read the Gospels, you know that Jesus is often described or describes himself as a bridegroom. In fact, I was talking about this theme with, uh, with Bill a number of weeks ago, and he mentioned to me that Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great American theologian of the 18th century, said that, that you could almost describe the story of the Bible as the story of God sending his son into this world to look for his bride. And what we're going to do is we're going to Think about that for a little bit. This text that we just read is is the end of that story. And the end of the story of Jesus looking for his bride is right here described as a a wedding feast, as the reception, a, a great wedding between Jesus and his church. The groom has come, he has found his bride, and he celebrates with her for all eternity. So we're going to think about this together. Now, before we do, let me just say to all the men out here, maybe you're saying to yourself, this is a little weird, you know, thinking about myself as a bride and Jesus is my bridegroom, kind of wigs me out a little bit, I'm not sure what to do with that. Suck it up. Galatians 4 tells women that they are all sons of God. So they have to deal with these strange metaphors too. And besides, is it easier to think of yourself as a bride or think of yourself as a sheep? Is that the one I did last time I was here? I think so. So this is easier. We, we just got to wrap our heads around it because we understand that, that these metaphors are used to give us insight into the relationship between us and God. So we're going to look at three things together. And the first thing we're going to see here is that this metaphor means that you are chosen. If the church is the bride of Jesus Christ, then that means you are chosen. Because, you know, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, uh, marriages were arranged, right? There was none of this, you know, swiping right or swiping left. No speed dating. No texting with a whole bunch of people and then maybe uh, going out for coffee with one or two and then maybe go see a movie with one and then maybe you decide to see each other a, a, a little longer. No, they were... These were relationships that were arranged, oftentimes, for political, sociopolitical, or economic reasons, yes, that's true, they had their reasons, but It's nevertheless true that brides were chosen. See, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and let's not assume that we know what it means to be a Christian just because we're all here and we all think we're Christians. Let's remind ourselves for a minute. If you're a Christian, it means you believe that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died and rose victorious over the grave so that if you put your trust in him, He, God accepts you based upon his perfect record and delight in you and if you were to die you will live forever in his presence in bliss and glory and majesty that's what it means to be a Christian if if that's you understand something the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ as becoming part of his bride when you come to faith in him you become part of his bride part of the church that means that Jesus chose you he initiated the relationship he established the relationship not you he chose you, not you chose him. Jesus says this to himself to his disciples, John chapter 15, he says, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you would go bear, good, uh, bear fruit. Now this should set our hearts on fire, and if it doesn't, it's because we've not allowed the impact of that metaphor to really sink deeply within us. Think about this, i got to flip the metaphor, okay? Because it really only works... It only helps us if we flip the metaphor. Any married man in this room, in all likelihood, has to admit that they probably married up. You know what I mean by that? If you're in a good relationship with your wife, you know she's better than you. She's probably better looking than you. She's in all likelihood smarter than you, but more important than that, you know deep down in your soul she's a better person than you. And, and if you get, allow yourself a few moments to think about it, you, you, you every now and then you're struck by the fact that you're married to her. You think to yourself, how on earth did I get hurt? How in the world, out of all the options that she had to choose from, did she decide to choose me? You you stand in awe of the fact that you are married to this remarkable woman. And the answer, you have to admit, is kind of a mystery. And nevertheless, she chose you. Now, who is Jesus? How much better than even your wife is Jesus? Here you have the perfect man. He is so wise. He is beyond the wisdom of of anything that you have experienced, and yet he is incredibly humble. He is powerful and strong, yet he is ever so gentle with you. He, He is courageous and fierce, and yet he is so kind. He's the perfect man. And on top of that, think of of how he demonstrated his perfect love for you. He actually went to the cross and died for you. You know, men say that they would die for their wife, and maybe they will risk their lives for their wives, but the reality is, is that Jesus came into this world with the purpose of dying for us. Why? Because of his love. He chose you not because you were worthy, not because you were lovely, not because you were beautiful. The Bible says that the only thing that any of us ever deserved from God was his rejection. And yet he chose us. its Is Justin Bieber still cool? Kind of? I'm looking for people under 25 to tell me. I don't trust anybody over 25. Yes, he's still cool. Well, good, because... I know that five years ago he was cool, and he used to do this thing, and maybe he still does it. Uh, when he goes to a concert, it's just wall to wall teen girls. They love Justin Bieber, and they all Bieber, and they all go to see him. And uh, some at some point in the concert, what he will do is is he will. He will take one girl, he will point out one girl, and he will take her up on the stage, and he will set her on a stool. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Are you beaverites? Okay. He'll set them on the stool, and then he'll serenade this one girl, and he'll sing this song, One Less Lonely Girl. And it's cheesy, but it's cool. Because for those few moments, This girl feels like the absolute, most special, most loved and cherished person in the world. She thinks that Justin Bieber, at least for those few moments, only has eyes for her. This is just a faint illustration of what God has done with us in choosing us to be the bride of his son, Jesus. Jesus chose us. And so what this should do for some of us is, frankly, this should humble us because some of us think, you know, when I, think, when I look at my record and I compare myself to Bob and Tom and Sally and Anne and, and Rachel, etc., I'm not so bad. I'm a pretty good person. I do all right. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but I'm pretty good. In fact, I, you know, I'm actually really good. Sometimes deep down in your soul, you you think to yourself, you know, my wife's actually lucky she chose me because I'm, you know. She could have chose Sam over there. Look at the guy. And the reality is is that we need to be humbled by the fact that that there was nothing in us that made us worthy of, of God's love, of Christ's devotion, and nevertheless he chose us. So it needs to humble some of us. But many of us, you know what it actually does is it elevates us because there are many people probably sitting in here or watching online or wherever you are, you think when you're alone and you have time to actually let your thoughts run, you spend most of your time trying to suppress your thoughts and not allowing them to run. That's why you don't practice solitude, though Pastor Bill encourages you to, because when you let the voices start to speak in your head, what do they say? You suck. You suck. You're a failure. You're not the person you want to be. You're not the person you ought to be. You're not the person anybody thinks you are. If anybody knew what you were really like, they would run the other way as quick as possible and delete you from their contacts on their phone and never want to talk to you again. And Jesus is here to tell you that no matter how dirty you think you are, no matter how guilty you think you are, he chose you. Why? Because he loves you. That's it. You're chosen. That's what this metaphor means. And it doesn't just mean you're chosen. It also means that you're secure. In the ancient Near East, an engagement or a betrothal is the language that we would use. Uh, in the ancient Near East, those things were permanent. That's why when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant, even though the two of them had not actually been wed yet, he had to divorce her, it said. He planned to divorce her quietly, because once you were betrothed, it was assumed that that relationship was now permanent. And we really think that way today, too. We don't talk in that language, but we kind of think that way today, because, you know, when two people are engaged and you hear somewhere down the line that the engagement is off, that they broke up, it's a scandal. Because we know and we long for marriage to be this thing that is supposed to be till death do us part, that you make these vows and commitments to another person, you say, I'm not going anywhere. And despite what the cool kids in the New York Times try to write about how divorce is is an act of radical self-actualization, we know that that's not how it's meant to be. Because we know that, the, that marriage is this, this unique relationship in all of the created order. It's this one strange relationship where you have this remarkable mixture of law and of love. It's more intimate than a business relationship. When you have a business relationship, you have laws and contracts that you sign, but there's no personal love or commitment to one another. Marriage is not like that. There is this personal relationship to it, but it's not like a friendship where you have the, 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 the relationship and you have the commitment to someone else, but you don't have any laws or contracts or rules around that relationship, no, no set commitment. No, nobody is saying, I'm, I'm your friend till death do us part, but you do have that in marriage. Marriage is this unique thing that is more intimate than an economic business relationship, but it's more loving and more... Uh, or more more legal and more binding than a friendship. It's deep and it's permanent. And Jesus is the perfect bridegroom so that you are utterly secure in your relationship with him. You know, 2 Timothy uh, 2, verse 13 says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You hear that? He cannot deny himself. Jesus doesn't base his faithfulness to you on your your performance in the relationship. You making sure that you keep your end of the bargain. No, he cannot deny himself. He is utterly faithful. Oh, man, I'd love to say more about that, but we've got to move on. So you are chosen and you are secure. Third thing, you're being prepared. If you're a part of the church, if you're a part of Christ's bride, that means you're chosen, that means you're secure, and it means that you're being prepared because you're engaged to Christ. What happens when, when a, a bride and a groom get engaged? Well, they've got to plan a wedding, right? Every bride, at least, knows that there's an awful lot that goes into wedding planning. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And the Bible says that there is a wedding coming. We're finally getting to our text. In verses 7 and 8, it says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. See, we're being prepared because Jesus wants a spotless bride. At a wedding, if you've been to a wedding, what is everybody waiting to see? We're all sitting around, checking our watches, looking out the window, checking our watches again, murmuring to one another, stamping our feet, especially if it's supposed to start at 11 and it's now 11.07 and nothing's happening. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the bride because what do we want to see? We want to see the dress. Wedding dresses are amazing. Wedding dresses make all women look gorgeous. It doesn't matter if you're not particularly naturally beautiful on your wedding day. Every woman looks fantastic. The hair is, 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 there's not a hair out of place, and the makeup is perfect. You're all done up, and the dress completes the picture. Well, if we're engaged to Christ, that means that we are being prepared to look like that for him on our wedding day. Jesus or Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 5 where he says this. He says in verse 25 and following, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What? To make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy, and blameless. Jesus is preparing us by washing us with his word. See, what you need to understand is, is when you become a Christian, you don't go from being bad to being good. A lot of people think that, that that's what it means to become a Christian. It means to be, go from being a bad person to being a good person. Well, it's not. The Bible describes becoming a Christian as, as going from lost to found, or from blind to seeing, or better yet, from death to life. That's what it means to become a Christian. It's not moral change, primarily. But it does lead to moral change. Because everyone who becomes a Christian remains a sinner. You are no longer under the penalty of sin, but you're still living with the consequences and and in some ways under the power of sin. And so Jesus works on us to rid us of our sin, to purify us more and more by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel to change us. Well, what does it look like to change us? It's pretty simple. He tells you to stop some stuff and tells you to start some stuff. You can look it up in Galatians chapter 5. You can see the works of the flesh and you see all these things that we were doing and he says, stop that. And then you see The fruit of the Spirit. And he says you are to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I memorized the fruit of the Spirit. I didn't memorize the works of the flesh. And it makes sense that that would happen because we're talking about a wedding. We're talking about a union between Christ and his people and unions, weddings, marriages are meant to be fruitful. Genesis chapter 1. So Jesus is making us ready, but we're also making ourselves ready. Verse 8, fine linen. It's in the the bracketed section, but it says, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Now, it's not talking about the the imputed righteousness of Christ there, about his righteous acts that he gives us. No, it's talking about the, the, the good acts, the good works that we do, that we put on, that we adorn ourselves with. Think think about this. If a bride really loves her groom, if she is smitten by her groom's love and she is as much in love with him as he is with her, what does she want to do? She wants to respond to that love in a way that honors him. She wants to honor her groom. Who is she looking good for on the wedding day? Sure, she wants to look good for her bridesmaid. She wants to look good for her friends or her roommates from college who are at the wedding. And yeah, she wants to look good for the family and all that kind of stuff. But who does she really want to look good for? It's the groom. It's her husband-to-be. She wants to blow him away. And as we do good works, works that God has prepared in advance for us to do, Ephesians 2, verse 10, as we do those things, as we seek to live in a way that is honoring to Christ and pleasing to him, as we put the needs of others before ourselves, we are adorning ourselves, we are readying ourselves for the wedding day, we are putting on the wedding dress, you see. And that leads to the final thing, the result. Verse 7 Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And verse 9, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We are blessed. We will rejoice and be glad because it's worth it. Listen. Preparing for a wedding can be hard. Jess and I, uh, Jessica is my wife, and uh, we had about a year-long engagement. I don't think we've ever fought so much as we did during our engagement. Preparing for the wedding. It was stressful. There was pressure. There were countless decisions to be made. But I tell you, man, as someone who's gone through it, for those of you who haven't, I promise you it is worth it. If you're a husband, don't you remember what it was like? Can you remember what it was like on your wedding day as you stood up there in the front waiting for your bride, all nervous and, and excited, etc.? And then she walked through that door and you finally got to see her all dialed up in her dress and with the makeup and with the hair and you found your heart was almost bursting. It was overflowing with love and adoration for her. You remember that? where you could barely contain yourself. I'm watch. i I'm a minister. I get to be up there and watch it happen. Bill will tell you too. It's the best part of our job, just about. And we get to watch these men just like fall apart as they see their bride for the first time in all her glory for them. Well, do, do you not understand, friends? That's going to be Jesus with you and with me on that cosmic wedding day. Whereas the Apostle John says in his letters, where we will see him as he is. Listen, the most amazing weddings in history. Diana's, Kate's, they're just dim hints of that. We're going to know a love beyond our wildest dreams. That's what's in store for us as the bride. And you know, because that's true, because that's true, that does a couple of things. And I'm just going to close with these thoughts. One is it relativizes earthly marriage. Uh, there is a real danger, probably in the church it's worse than in other places actually. There is a real danger to look to your spouse and to, to idolize them to the point like I'm married, we're going to have a family, it's going to be awesome, I'm going to live in wedded bliss forever and ever and ever and after about two weeks you discover oh boy, this, that's not how it's going to go. No, no marriage goes like that. And so you are free when you know that this is the wedding that you're waiting for. You are free to stop putting so much pressure and expectation on your spouse to provide things for you that they were never meant to provide. Only Jesus was meant to provide them. And it, mer- it relativizes marriage in this sense, too. There's, there's people, and this, this is hard in the church as well, there are people who are single. Maybe they want to be married, maybe they don't want to be married, regardless of whether they want to or not, they're not married, and they're single. And it can be very difficult for single people to live within the church, because churches have a a tendency, understandably so, but not, not saying rightly, just saying understandably so, churches have a tendency to minister to families. And single people can feel like they're missing out, like they're a second-class citizen within the church because they're not married. And if you are rooted in understanding that this is the marriage that we are all waiting for, do you know that the Bible said, Jesus said that in heaven there will be neither marrying or giving in marriage because we will all be married to him. And if you're single and you're thinking there's a love that I want to have that I've never been able to enjoy, I've never been able to find someone and I feel like I'm missing out, understand this. The wonderful thing about the Christian faith is, is that the gospel promises that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus will ultimately never, ever, ever miss out. It's one of the reasons that Christianity ought to be so hard to believe because it promises things that no other religion has the, the guts to dare promise. There is not a thing that we ultimately miss out. Because the promise is, is that when we are united to our husband, finally and completely, all the pain and all the suffering, all the, C.S. Lewis says that, all the, the evil, all the disappointment, all the, all the sadness, it It works backwards. It works backwards and the, and the final redemption that we experience at the last day, it, it, it actually incorporates that pain and that suffering into a glory that's even greater than we would have had if we didn't experience all that suffering and pain. Alright, that's the last thing I'm going to say. I guess this is where I say amen. Let's pray. Father, it is hard to believe that you would call us into this kind of relationship so intimate, so profoundly deep uh, and enduring that we can hardly wrap our minds around it. We can hardly take it in. Thank you Lord Jesus that you chose us. Thank you that we are secure in your love. Thank you that you are making us beautiful for that day and thank you that whatever disappointment we endure now, it is ultimately worth it. Because we are going to fall into the arms of our groom and we will be lost in wonder, love, and praise at that last day. In Jesus' name, Amen. so I did get a couple questions Uh, the first one is how does one get from the feeling of I'm not worth it that the sins are too great that there is no way that a holy God could choose me how does one get from that to I, I guess how do you get from that to I rejoice at the fact that I am chosen and I rest in that um To put it really simply, and I I I want to be sensitive about this, but it's hard to do that in a a context like this because you're just sort of answering questions. You don't know who's asked them. You don't know their story in the context, et cetera. So this is going to sound like I'm just sort of using a a sledgehammer on the the question rather than a scalpel. Um, you, You continually preach the gospel to yourself. I'll give you a couple of smart guys who lived a long time ago and died. um, Martin Luther, he basically said that uh, people are dumb and the job of a minister is to teach them the gospel and then teach them the gospel again and then teach them the gospel again and basically pound it into their heads. That's why you come to church week after week to hear the basically versions of the same story over and over again. You hear the gospel over and over again. Uh, and so it's a little bit, you're a little bit like a vending machine, you know? You know when you go to a vending machine and you put a toonie in? It's probably a toonie now, right? Uh, put it in to get a pop and you, and, and the, the toonie doesn't drop. You know, you ever have that? You stick it in and then it doesn't go clinkety-clink down? I hope this works, but I'm, I'm going with it. For old people, this will work. Um, and so what do you do? You pound, on, you pound on the vending machine. Bang, 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 to get that, that coin to drop so that you can get the pop out. That's what you got to do. you got to see yourself as a pounding machine, a machine that needs to be pounded over and over again with the gospel in order that you might believe it and rest in it. And then how do you do that? Well, one way you do that, Robert Murray McShane used to say that for every one look at your sin, you take ten looks at, at Christ. Our tendency is to flip that around. If you certain kind of people, particularly people who have grown up in churches, uh, you know, conservative Bible-believing churches, who take sin seriously, sometimes we take it so seriously that we just like wallow in it, and we look at it all the time, and we think about it all the time, and we 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 bathe in it all the time. And what McShane was saying is is that. Christ is greater than our sin, and so He's the thing that we should be looking at all the time—not our sin, not our lowliness, not "woe is me, woe is me" all the time—but "great great are you, Lord; great are you, Lord" all the time. So maybe you got to stop. And okay, this I got from Tim Keller. You got to ask yourself the question: Are you are you greater than God? What do I mean by that? If you can't accept that God's forgiveness is for you, what does that say about you? It says that there's some sort of pride or some sort of, of, of frankly, arrogance within us that, that thinks that we know better than God what salvation ought to look like. And so you just got to wrestle with that too and, and, and humble yourself and say, Lord, you know what? I can't even get over the fact that, that you love me And that you have truly washed away all my sin. I I struggle to get over that. And I repent of that. I repent of my pridefulness. I repent of my my deep-seated desire to somehow make myself worthy of your grace. It's an oxymoron, worthy of grace. But we oftentimes want to do that. It's the default mode of the human heart to justify itself. And so you just repent of that. And then you look at Jesus and look at Jesus and look at Jesus and look at Jesus. Okay, that's that one. Um, One more. Um, I love this question. Out of all the metaphors you've preached on, this feels the hardest to connect with. Weirdly enough, I can connect with being a dumb sheep who needs shepherding. (laughs) But being a bride who is chosen and loved seems foreign and unbelievable. Why is this one harder to believe? Why does this one seem untrue? Well, it, it might be connected to the question prior. It might be because of the guilt that you feel, etc. And you can't believe that, that Jesus would choose you out of all the people he could choose. So that could be part of it. It could be because... If you think about it... I didn't make this part of my sermon because I was trying to be shorter. <laughs> but when I preached this at my church, what I said was, "Is I think that this, this metaphor is evidence of the truth of Christianity because it is so outrageous. It is outrageous to think that this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-pure, all-holy, all-good being would make us, piddly little us, who screw up royally all the time, who basically, when we can fit it in, we spend time with him. We don't long for ways to find time with him. We don't pursue ways to find time with him. We fit it into our schedules because we have all these such important things that we have to do, so, so we think. Who, When he tells us, this is how you should live, if you do this, you will live, and if you do this, you will die, we go, yeah, maybe, but this looks like so much fun. And we go do that constantly. The Old Testament describes us as, as, as adulterers, cheating on our, on our husband, all these things, right? And then this God says, I love you so much, I want to love you the way a perfect husband would love his wife. And you say, that's just plain hard to believe. And it is. It's just plain hard to believe. I readily admit that. So why, why is it hard to believe? Because of who he is and who we are. No other religion comes even close to promising that kind of a relationship with our God. They would, that would be blasphemous. That's why I think it's an argument for the truth of Christianity. No human being would think that up. It doesn't make sense to think up a religion where that's at the heart of it, and yet the Christian faith is. That's probably a lousy answer. You want a more subjective answer, like, help me feel it, and, and I'll pray for you, and you should pray for yourself. you would feel it that this promise would become sweet to your taste buds and that it would become real to your experience and that your anticipation of that day would become palpable and that it would drive you that's the best